0: The title for this message is Greatness Veiled in Weakness. And as we read chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, you'll notice there's a title above that text, the triumphal entry. It's a very well-known piece of scripture. And yet what I want you to consider right from the outset, even as we read it and start to study it together, is so much of what you've probably been taught in the past isn't quite true. Because this text is not all that it seems. In fact, Palm Sunday isn't all that it seems. So let's read these 11 verses together. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that in your sovereignty and splendor, you created one mark, a wonderful storyteller to tell the story of your life. Well, Lord, as we study this part of the story of your life today, Lord, would you open our eyes, believing this word is spirit-filled and spirit-exhaled. Lord, would you open our eyes to all that's being said here, and would we be amazed as we see you, Jesus of Nazareth, on the back of a lowly donkey, Lord, help us see it. Amen. You know, for all of us in our lives, we do at different times face points of no return, don't we? I know in my life i faced a number of these points of no return. I remember when we lived in the United States. Emma and I attended the pastor's college. there for a year. At the end of that year, we, we hired an RV. It was so dangerous. And we hired an RV and we just started going around different places. Emma did not drive, neither did I. Americans drove alone. And so we went out for the day. We went out on a series of days. Went to Niagara Falls, saw a load of cool, cool places. But one of the highlights was when we went to Ohio and we went to the Six Flags Park there. And as soon as I walked in, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to go on a roller coaster called Superman. This thing was super it was huge it was absolutely massive it went up so far it felt like you're in the clouds I mean this thing was absolutely massive and here was the problem I don't like heights in fact I'm scared of heights but I just knew I wanted to give it a go and so the actual guy that we were going with on holiday with he said Dave you are scared of heights are you sure you want to do this and I'm like oh absolutely I want to do this I just want the adrenaline and I never forget we're in the line we're in the queue it took about an hour just to get to the front it's about a 45 second ride tops but you're in the hour you've got an hour in the queue and we eventually get to the front he's like are you sure you want to do this because you're scared of heights I'm like I totally want to do this and I'll never forget the moment where the seatbelt comes down (laughs) and you think I could probably get out right now and then all of a sudden you start moving and you're like oh my gosh I cannot get out that is it I'm dead for better or worse, for richer or poorer, until death do us part, I am on this roller coaster. And I screamed my way round. I nearly passed out. It was absolutely horrendous. It was the worst thing I've ever done. I've never been on a roller coaster since. It was horrible in every way. But I will never forget that point of no return where that seatbelt comes down and you realise, I am on the ride. Right. I can't get out of it. I remember when we were moving to Australia and we had, we had put our house up for rent... And we owned a house then and we put it up for rent. Um, And I'll never forget the moment where we pack all of our bags. We're allowed one suitcase each. So we've got five suitcases to bring on the plane with us to Australia. And all the rest of our stuff goes into a container. And it's going to come from Newport, Wales to Sydney, Australia. It's just going to take three months. That's the only thing. And so I'll never forget packing it all into the container. (laughs) And the man comes. It's on the back of this big lorry. He closes the door and he says, hey, I just need you to lock it for me. So I lock all our stuff into this container. He says, oh, just sign here, sign there, gave him it back. And I I just remember all of our stuff that we own, everything, every photo, every piece of belongings, leaving and just being aware, we are now going to Australia. And I look back at the kids and they're sort of standing there with their suitcases and you know, in a house that you don't even own anymore because we're renting it out. It was just one of those moments where you realize we are in, we are now clearly moving to Australia. It's gone, I, I can't change it. Even if I wanted to, we had passed the point of no return. Well, for Jesus, in a far more serious and severe and life-defining way, this is one such point of no return for him. See, from this moment on, nothing will ever be the same again for Jesus. In chapters 11 through 16 in the Gospel of Mark, All of these six chapters are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. The first ten chapters, we've been examining the first three years of Jesus' ministry. But now for the last six chapters, we are down to one single week. In just five days' time, from this moment that we just read about, Jesus will be hanging in a bloodied mess on a cross with a thief Either side of him, his life will be drawing to a close and coming to an end. And yet before our eyes this morning, this is where it all begins. This is the point of no return. This is the moment where the lock goes on the container. This is the moment where you get belted into the ride. This is the moment where for Jesus, there will be no turning back from this point. And as such, we are on holy ground this morning. This is the moment where from here on in, he's going to be dying in five days' time. There's going to be no getting out of it. And so as we spend time on this holy ground, I have three points for us. I don't want us to rush it. I want us to examine all that is going on here. I want us to see all that Mark is seeking to tell us about Jesus and the way this affects us. So three points as we go through the story. And here's the first. Number one, the purposeful preparation. Verses one through six. And let's read with me again verses one through four so we can familiarize ourselves here. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, Bethpage and Bethany and the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. You know, when you read verses 1 through 4 and then you examine and continue the story in verses 5 and 6, you can't help but wonder I think, why is it that Mark is paying so much attention to a donkey, to the obtaining of a donkey. I mean, there are many famous donkeys in the Bible, Balaam's leading the line, but this guy gets six whole verses just to himself. The six verses all dealing with the obtaining of one donkey. I mean, it does seem, I think, a little odd and strange and unnecessary. Mark is so particular in the words he uses, and so why... Why does he want to take six verses over the obtaining of a donkey? Why doesn't it just read, And they came to Jerusalem near Bethpage and Bethany, and Jesus got a donkey? See, verses 2 through 4, we see the Lord's instructions about this donkey. They're very specific, and clearly they're quite risky. I mean, imagine the scene. Jesus tells you, hey, I'd like you to just pop into Bethpage... I'd like you to get a donkey, it's not obviously mine or yours, but just untie it. And if they, if they question you, just say, oh, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. I mean, that would be quite a hard line to sell, don't you think? You are stealing somebody's donkey. And if they ask you about it, just say, oh, the Lord has need of it. Well, the Lord who? You know what I'm saying? It's just embarrassing. And so you can wonder, this does seem odd, this does seem strange, this does appear to be unnecessary. And yet, as is typical for Mark, it's totally deliberate. Mark spends six verses describing this specific detail for us. Because he wants to help us see that the Lord, as King of kings and Lord of lords, really is sovereign and intentional and powerful over everything. Even in the last week of his life, as it begins, this isn't just spontaneous or accidental. The Lord is leading the charge. He knows where this cult is going to be. He knows what it's going to look like. He knows what you're going to have to say so that it can be brought to him. This entrance into Jerusalem in this moment is not accidental or spontaneous in the way it happens. This entrance has been planned before the foundation of the earth. And that wants us to see it. He wants us to know it. Jesus, as he leads his life to Calvary, no one is taking his life from him. He's freely giving it. He's in control all along. Seeing doing this, Jesus publicly identifies himself as the Messiah. He doesn't do that and hasn't done that up until this point, clearly to a crowd. And in this point, he publicly identifies himself as the Messiah. Listen to what Zechariah 9 verse 9 says. This is a prophecy written 300 years before Jesus ever even enters onto the earth, okay? Zechariah 9 verse 9, 500 years before Jesus arrives, prophetically says this. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey is he. For three years then, Jesus' messianic identity has been shrouded in secrecy. Jesus has been healing people. They've wanted to go around the world telling everybody what he's done, and he said, oh, listen, don't do that. Every time he said to them, don't, don't tell people. Don't tell people about me. Don't tell people. When he's casting out demons, and these demons are uh, uh, coming from people's mouths and saying, we know who you are. What does he do? Every single time up to this point, he commands them to be silent and to tell no one. His messianic identity has been shrouded in mystery because his time wasn't then. But as Jesus gets on the back of a donkey that he knew would be there before even the foundation of the earth, what he's saying is, that wasn't my time, but this is now my time. And so go get that donkey because I want to show everybody how I am the Messiah that was always promised. I know what that's going to lead to. In five days' time, I'm going to be hanging on a cross. But go get that donkey anyway because they need to know the truth. So this 500-year-old prophecy that no one has answered before, Jesus now answers in the fall and rides into Jerusalem as their king on the back of a donkey. My friends, this is profound. This isn't just spontaneity. This is purposeful preparation. And I don't want you to miss as well the Savior's compelling example of humility in this. Because I think we can miss it. I think we can be unaffected by it. I think we can sit there as Christians and go, oh, that's yeah, very interesting, nice. And be totally unaffected. But look who it is here. This is the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. This is the one who spins the galaxies. This is the one who breathes out the sun. This is the one who numbers the stars so that not one is missing. This is the one who can walk the earth... And say to the tide, this far and no further. This is the one who can measure all the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. This is the one who can walk on water. This is the one who knows your thoughts before you even think it. And here he is riding into Jerusalem as king of kings and lord of lords on a donkey. He made Jerusalem. And yet now he comes to her on the back of a donkey, on the back of a colt. That is profound. I mean, I remember a few years ago, we went on holiday to the UK, and we, it's funny, because you live there all your life, and then you move out, and suddenly you want to be like a tourist. And so you go to the UK. I remember going to Windsor Castle, the home of the Queen. It's been actually the home of a monarch for over a 1,000 years. So whoever the King or Queen of England is, they live in Windsor Castle, have done for 1,000 years and they become the queen or king of England, the queen of, or king of Great Britain, and the queen or king of the Commonwealth. And they live in Windsor Castle. And this place is amazing. Because you can go in and study it and, and, and see what it's like. And for start off with, as soon as you go in, you realise this place is massive. I mean, it's just absolutely huge. But what also becomes clear is clearly a king or a queen live here. I mean, you walk into some rooms and there's like a table with 200 seats beside it. And it's just this royal mahogany table with just incredible porcelain and then chairs. And then you look up and you realize, oh my gosh. And on the ceiling, it's just full of shields. All the noblemen and knights and kings and queens and sirs that have been ordained over the years. They all have their own individual shield in the ceiling. You go in other rooms and you realize, this this is incredible. This is where the queen has slept. You go in another room, the one that blew me away, was the golden room. And I realized quite quickly why they call it the golden room. Because when you go in, the whole room is gold. And it, it takes, your, takes your breath away as you just realize, man, this is, this is incredible. It just speaks of royalty in every way. And I was walking through this gold room, and right at the end of the gold room, there's this wonderful portrait of Queen Elizabeth II when in 1953 the royal coronation happened, where she became queen. And there's this wonderful picture of her standing there and with Prince Philip. And she has the crown on her head. She has the royal scepter in her hand. And there is this long robe that's coming down from her body and all the way before her. And then right beside that picture is a movie of the queen's coronation. It's incredible. Over three million people came from around the world. Kings and queens of other nations, royal dignitaries, noblemen from across the globe. There's people all around London that are cheering as the horse draws the carriage before them. And as she enters into Westminster Abbey, everybody stands to their feet. Everybody in the room is either a king or a queen or a prime minister or a president. Everybody stands to their feet. They sing, God save the queen. And she comes in with this royal robe behind her. And they seat her on this golden throne. And they give her a royal scepter as a sign of her sovereignty, and they put a crown on her head as the sign that she is now the ruler of England and Great Britain and the Commonwealth. That's what you think of when you think of royalty. That's what you would expect. And yet, as Jesus comes as the true King of Kings and true Lord of Lords, to whom every king and queen around the world will one day bow their knee, he comes in on the back of a donkey. See, even in this time, people would have understood kings and queens. Jerusalem would have been well acquainted with what it looks like for a visiting king or queen to come in. They would come in with a robe all around them. It would be hanging off the back of the horse, and it wouldn't be no donkey, it would be a stallion. And there would be crowds around them saying, Hail, king or queen. And that king or queen would be seated high on a great stallion with the robe going all the way down their back, and all the way back down the stallion, And people would bow before it because they realized this is royalty. But not so with Jesus. As the true king of kings and lord of lords, he comes in on the back of a donkey because he's a different kind of king. He's not going to crush a nation. He's going to be crushed himself to build his kingdom. He's entering into Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for many. He's going to build his kingdom by dying a traitor's death in their place. It's an incredible thing. So this isn't just some guy coming in on a donkey. This is purposeful preparation from the king. And what occurs then, I think, in verses 7 through 10, which is my second point, is the grievous response. Now that is not instantaneously noticeable. You may think, no, surely this response is awesome. It's not what it seems. Look with me at verse 7 through 10. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, first glance, this appears to be awesome, doesn't it? This appears to be spontaneous from the crowd. It appears to be unusual. It appears to be unique. It appears to be a crowd that seems to understand exactly who it is and are calling it to everybody's attention. See, this crowd in this moment would have been huge. The road to Jerusalem in this moment would have been filled with pilgrims because everybody is making their move towards the annual Passover celebration. This is the Sunday before Jesus would die on Passover day. Everybody's making their way to Jerusalem. Everybody would understand in this culture that everybody would go. The head of the home would all go if you're Jewish. And if your family could come as well, then awesome. Everybody's going. Jerusalem at this point would be two to three times its usual size. And the atmosphere in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem would be one of celebration and jubilation. This is party time. This is like Sydney in the Olympics, okay? Everybody's excited. Everybody's talking about it. Thousands of people are emerging on a city. That's what's happening here in Jerusalem at the moment. Everybody is heading back for the Passover celebration. Everybody is there. And at first glance, the reaction of the crowd then appears wonderful. It appears spontaneous and unusual and unique. But it's when you look again, whilst understanding their culture, and whilst understanding the Passover, that you realise that these cries aren't actually spontaneous or unusual or unique See, in actual fact, these cries are the common and often repeated cries of the crowds and the pilgrims drawn drawn from the Psalms for these festival occasions. Everybody's saying it. Every pilgrim that comes past, they're all crying the same thing. They don't relate into Jesus. They relate into anybody that's coming across because this is party time for our city. And so they would repeat the psalms. The pilgrims would all be singing them. The crowd would all be singing them. It would almost be a sign of nationalism at this moment. It was jubilation and celebration. And what Mark wants to help us see, although it's subtle, it's important, what Mark wants to help us see is that in all reality, the crowd simply don't get it in this moment. They have no idea who this one that travels on a donkey really is. William Nain, the Markan scholar, says it this way. He says, The action of the crowd described here does not appear to possess a messianic significance. But sadly, there is no explicit acknowledgement of Jesus' majesty in the acclamation of verses 9 and 10 at all. It was a brief moment of enthusiasm from the crowd. Outside the city walls, which would have been appropriate to a royal enthronement, but it was scarcely distinguishable from the exaltation which characterized other groups of pilgrims when the city of David, with its magnificent temple, came into view. These cries express a popular type of messianic hope, and yet despite the enthusiasm of their homage, it would appear that there is no awareness at all on the part of the people that the time of fulfillment has actually arrived. And that the kingdom has actually drawn near in the person of Jesus himself. So what they shouted was certainly accurate in relation to Jesus, but sadly, there is no indication that they actually comprehended at all the grand significance of what was happening before them. Isn't that wild? Now, historically, when people are talking about Palm Sunday, it's like, oh, sweet, that was the day when the crowd just went crazy over Jesus. No they didn't. They were just celebrating. This was Passover time. Pilgrims are coming in sweet. They had no idea who was passing by them. No idea at all. James Edwards, another Mark and scholar, says there are of course subtle messianic undertones, and Jesus is riding a cult into Jerusalem as the gentle and peaceable Messiah of Zechariah chapter nine. But it is doubtful whether the crowd or authorities grasped their significance. For just like that of countless other Passover pilgrims to Jerusalem, Jesus' entry was simply regarded by the masses as yet another pilgrimage rather than the Messianic entrance that it was. Isn't that wild? All these people coming in, they're all singing, they're all going crazy. And yet what Mark wants to help us see is they just didn't get it. And so don't misunderstand. There are some here without doubt that are traveling with Jesus that understand that he is the Messiah. They believe him to be the Messiah. But they don't get it. The disciples, they don't get it. The disciples, they think as soon as we get into Jerusalem, i do not quite sure what he's going to do, but eventually at some point he's going to become a military leader. He's going to overthrow the Romans and then we're going to rule as Israel again across the nations. And so I'm thinking, can I sit at your right or your left when you start doing that? Because I want to be there. Bartimaeus is with him. His life's been radically changed. He, he knows you're clearly the Messiah. You're the son of David. He doesn't quite get what's going to happen when they get... Just a couple of days earlier, Jesus healed and raised back to life one Lazarus. Well, that appeared to get the crowds going a few days ago, so there's a great crowd to do with that as well. Hey, listen, check this guy out. He can raise people from the dead. And we know from just yesterday when Jesus encountered Bartimaeus that already a great crowd was with Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. So there's a whole group of them that understand this is the Messiah. It's the Messiah, but they have no clue what that means. They think he's going to overthrow the Romans. And then there's a whole load of other people that line the streets in this moment that don't even think he's the Messiah at all. They just haven't got a clue. He's just some guy in regular clothing on the back of a donkey. Well, that's nice. Welcome. Hosanna. Let's sing our songs. But no clue. No clue what's going on. See, Mark wants to show us this, my friends, and we have to understand this. He wants to show it is because he wants us to understand that even now, Jesus is alone. He's in effect doing this by himself. Way back in chapter 10, verse 32, we see Jesus walking on ahead of his disciples. He's already set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And it specifically says he is walking on ahead of them. Because Mark wants us to understand he's the only one that's carrying this. He's the only one that gets it. He's the only one that truly understands who he is and all that is awaiting him in Jerusalem. And so he's walking on ahead alone. And what Mark wants to help us see now is even though there's a clamor around him, even though the crowds are going crazy, even though the crowds in actual effect are declaring exactly who he is, Jesus is nonetheless on the back of a donkey alone as the only one that knows what's going to happen when he gets there. The disciples don't get it. The crowds around don't get it. Imagine how lonely it would be to have a crowd effectively cheering and chanting your name and yet not even realize that it's actually you. That's what Mark wants to help us see and feel. Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. He knows how he is going to be mocked and spat on and flogged and killed. He knows that in five days' time, he will be hanging on a bloodied cross in our place. And yet right now, he's just alone, making his way there, as the king, by himself. William Lane It says, for at this time it is apparent only one truly knew of the messianic significance of his action. And that one was Jesus. Only he got it. Only he understood. He is in effect alone. And that's only emphasized by Mark then in verse 11 where we see the third part of the story, the unexpected conclusion. What happens in verse eleven? It's incredible. Says, and he entered Jerusalem, and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, so he went home to Bethany with the twelve. Does that not seem a little odd to you? I mean, this seems to be, to me, one of the most unexpected and anticlimactic moments in all of Scripture. This is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The crowds have just gone crazy about him, or at least that's what it would appear to be. The crowds are singing his name, declaring who he is. He arrives at the temple, the place where God in his grace always meets with his people. He arrives at the temple as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He arrives at the temple as God himself, and no one's there to meet him. He just looks like a tourist. No one cares about him. No one's interested in him. His crowds that were just there a moment ago have all dispersed. It is one of the most unexpected and anticlimactic moments in all of Scripture. But what Mark is doing is helping us see Jesus was alone. No one got it. Time and time again, Mark is trying to help us see this is yet another indication and confirmation that no one truly understood him to be the king in a way that Jesus is always saying he was. So even now, he's only just entered Jerusalem, but the crowds are dispersing. Crowds that would have seen him heal people, crowds that would have seen him rebuke demons, crowds that just a few days earlier were apparently singing his name. Now they're not interested. So you just get this picture of him almost walking around a temple, looking around, looking at everything, and no one cares. So it gets late, gets his 12 boys together, and he goes to Bethany for the night. You know, this verse, I think, really does have an eerie and ominous feel about it, doesn't it? it, it it's slightly pregnant. It is, it is strange. And it is eerie and ominous because it is indeed a prelude to an event that will erupt in the temple, as far as Jesus is concerned, tomorrow. See, for tomorrow, the whole attention, as we'll see next week, will turn to the temple. And this is a prelude to that moment where zeal for the Father's house will consume Jesus. For the temple, for hundreds of years in Jewish tradition, has been the place where God would meet his people, where mankind would come and they would sacrifice animals, they would get right with God and therefore worship him as king of kings and lord of lords. The temple was the center of everything for Jews. That's where everybody wanted to return, return to so that they could truly worship God, so they could offer their sacrifices and worship God, understanding that this is the place where God meets with his people. It was the tabernacle, now it's the temple. And yet when Jesus rocks up the next day, none of that's going on. They've turned it into a market. It's a joke what has happened. And so zeal for the Father's house consumes Jesus and as we'll see, he will make a whip. He will start driving people out and just five days after that, the temple in Jewish tradition would be completely redundant because the temple was always meant to point towards Jesus. The coming of the one who would be the true sacrificial lamb who through him Access would be made open to all, towards the Father. And yet as Jesus stood there on this day, no one cared. And so tomorrow, the reason why Mark is saying, and he looked around at everything, is because Jesus is taking it all in. And tomorrow, they'll start to understand his wrath and who he really is. Artie France says it this way. He says, what happens the next morning will not be a spontaneous act of outrage but a planned demonstration planned for prime time and maximum exposure it was a demonstration calculated to interrupt business as usual and bring the nearness of god's reign abruptly and forcefully to the attention of all just a week from now the temple would be insignificant in jewish tradition Just a week from now, the temple curtain would be torn in two from top to bottom and access to God the Father would be made possible from every tribe and language and nation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And yet before he goes, Jesus is going to let them know exactly how he feels about what they've done to his temple, what they've done to his father's house. Because this is never what it was for. This is indeed ominous then and eerie because it is a prelude to what will happen the next day but it is also a conclusion and it's a conclusion as yet again Mark seeks to help us see that Jesus is alone. He's come in on the back of a donkey no one knows who he is the disciples are singing and declaring different things but they have no idea what he's going to do when he gets there. The crowd don't even know who he is. they're just singing over him, thinking he's a regular guy, just another pilgrim. That's nice. Hey, sing the songs. And then when he arrives at his father's house, a place he had been in when he was just a young man as well, now he arrives back as the one that the temple always leaned to, this place that signified where God will meet with man. he gets there, and no one cares. He's not welcomed. No one notices. No one's interested. So he leaves. See, this isn't what always people think it is, is it? It's incredible. And it's a picture, not so much of a triumphal entry, so much as a lonely death march as Jesus enters in towards his death that will happen in just five days' time. So what then does it all mean? Why is Mark such detailing, such points for us that he wants us to understand? Well, first and foremostly, I think what it all means is that Jesus truly is our King. That's the thing that he wants us to know time and time again through the Gospel of Mark. Right the way from the start, chapter 1, verse 1, Mark has been trying to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in the whole storyline of the Bible... That's why this gospel is so important. Because right at the start of the storyline of the Bible, which is ultimately just one story, we see God making man. We see God knitting us together in our mother's womb and making us to find our identity and our joy and our satisfaction in God himself. This is the whole point. This is where it all begins. And yet within three chapters, mankind decides they don't fancy that. And we've all been following suit thereafter. Mankind rejects God. They don't want to follow the Creator. They want to just enjoy the creation. And as a result, God, in His holiness, curses over man. And He curses over woman. And then He curses over Satan. And He tells Satan in a prophetic way that, listen, you are cursed. And one will come. And although you will bruise his heel, He will crush your head. He prophesies a serpent crusher to come, one who will come to make it possible for us to get back into the garden, one who will make it possible for us to be redeemed again and have a relationship with God in the way we're meant to do. All the way through the Old Testament, then there's shadows and types and prophecies all pointing to what he's going to be like, where he's going to be born, how he's going to die, what he's going to look like, how people will feel about him. And all the way through the Gospel of Mark, then what he's doing is going Here he is. They're like these massive arrows saying, this is him. This is the one you've been waiting for all this time. And all the way through Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, that's their points. This is him. This is the king that was promised. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark shows us he's got authority over everything. He's got authority over demons. Demons. He looks demons in the eye and says, get out, and they respond to him. He has authority over health. He can pray for somebody in a moment. They're completely healed. He has authority over nature. He can walk on water. He can stand up in a boat and say to a storm, be still, and it stills. He even has authority over death, telling Lazarus, come forth. And in that moment, life comes back into his body, and he comes forth. In the same way, Jesus fulfills prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, time and time again. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, relating to over 500 years' worth of prophetic utterances. And Jesus fulfills them. And so in Isaiah chapter 40, we see how God will send a messenger before the Christ, who will prepare the way of the Lord. And in Mark chapter 1, we see, oh, that's John the Baptist declaring prepare the way of the Lord, and baptizing people in their thousands into the baptism of repentance, preparing the way of the Lord. In Psalm 23, hundreds of years before Jesus is born, we see him talked about as the good shepherd, the true Lord, the true King, who would care for people and restore their souls. And then in Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus Feeding 5,000 people, but before he feeds them, getting them to lie down in green pastures, seating them on the green grass. That isn't just an accidental note by Mark. He's telling us this is him. He's getting them even now to sit in green pastures, and he will restore their souls, not only with food, but with faith and life. In Job chapter 9, we see that only God can trample on the waves of the sea. And in Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus trampling on the waves of the sea, not just accidentally, but to reveal that I am God. And then in Zechariah 9, as we've seen, we see that the king will come to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Which is why Jesus says, hey, I could walk. I could come in on the back of someone else. Why don't you go get me that donkey? Because before the foundation of the earth, I made sure it was there for me. So get it and bring it back. And as the Lamb of God then, I will sit myself on it so that I can go towards Jerusalem to give my life away as a ransom for many. All the way through this gospel, Mark is showing us that this is him. And So if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, my friends, I want to encourage you Listen to a moment to the king, because this is what he says. John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. My friends, your king has come. This is the one who was promised. This is the only way back to God the Father. This is the only way to be forgiven of your sins and adopted into the family of God and know that heaven is your home. This is the only way. So put your faith in him as your Lord and saviour, as your king, and know what true salvation then is. Mark wants to picard before our eyes that Jesus truly is our king. And then there's something else he wants to do, just in closing wants to help us see that Jesus, as our King, truly loves each and every one of us. And this is amazing. See, my friends, in our humanity and in our weakness, our feelings for the Lord can so easily come and go, can't they? Don't you think? Sometimes you feel totally in love with Jesus. You're amazed with Jesus. You just want to give up everything for Jesus because he amazes you. And other times, well, I just feel kind of cold. I remember really being passionate about him, but but right now I, I ain't feeling it. In our humanity and in our weakness, I think we all struggle with that at different times. At least I know I do at times. Times when my heart is not as warm as I would like it to be towards the Lord. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we can make then as Christians is we start to think that maybe that's the way the Lord feels and processes towards us as well. That when we're really feeling close to him and in love with him, then surely he must be standing there loving us back. But when we feel distant from him, well, then maybe he's disappointed with me. And maybe he's keeping out the way from me. In fact, maybe I'm just a disappointment to him. Maybe you're experiencing that. Maybe that's your story even today. You see other people worshipping with their arms in the air. They seem amazed, but you're sitting there thinking, I'm just not I'm, I'm just not feeling it. And you assume then wrongly that that must be the way the Lord feels about you. That he's not just feeling it either. My friends, I want to encourage you for each and every one of us this morning. This is, this is what I want you to know. It's what I think Mark wants you to know. It's what I think the Savior wants you to know. And it's this, that as King of kings and Lord of lords, he passionately and personally and particularly loves you. And here's how I know it. I know it because before there was even time, he knew exactly what you'd be like. Before there was even time, he knew every sin you would ever commit. Before there was even time, he knew there would be moments in your life that you would doubt him. You would doubt probably even his very existence. And then even after you'd stop doubting his very existence, there would be times that you would totally be in love with him and times that you'd be totally indifferent to him and disappoint him and grieve him and move away from him. And yet, even knowing all those things, he nonetheless arranged that at the start of the final week of his life, there would be a donkey tied up in a village that he would send his disciples to get so that when they bring it back to him, he could sit on it and ride into Jerusalem in your place. Knowing that when he gets there, he would be mocked and spat upon and beaten. Knowing that throughout this whole experience, he would be totally alone And yet, he nonetheless gets on the back of that donkey his point of no return. Why? Because he passionately and personally and particularly loves you. His feelings don't go up and down, he's the God that never changes. And that love that you see displayed on Calvary, even five days earlier, as he passes the point of no return, was meant to teach you of his love for you. We can't work out how he feels about us depending on how we feel about him. We can work out how he feels about us based on rock-solid truth. And so we read in the Bible, for this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. My friends, I want you to know then of his personal and passionate and particular love for you and live in the good of it. Don't forget it. Because this King of kings and Lord of lords who in this moment should have received fanfare and glory and majesty went on a death march to Calvary for you so behold his love and feel it and then crown him with many crowns amen let's pray Lord I thank you for your word thank you for the way it discloses truths about you that we not only get to see mentally but we get to feel which is why it's here Lord, we do thank you then for your love. As you came and gave your life away, it wasn't just for a blob of people, it had names attached to it. And so Lord, as we see you just sitting on the back of a donkey, would we not be ignorant like the crowd were in this moment? Would we not just make empty cries, clueless of what's really going on? What we realize? You got on the back of that donkey for me. You made your way to Calvary for me. And you died the most gruesome of deaths, not only in body, but in soul. As the father turned his face away. Why? For me. So Lord, we crown you with many crowns. Would we never lose sight of who you are or your love for us? And would we truly worship you? Amen. What well, church we started serve the service today would be reminded of that. So what an what a awesome privilege.